Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everybody, my name is Reyes Bertolin. I'm a professor of classics at the University of Calgary. And with me is Professor David Land, who is an associate professor of history at Southern Utah University. He is a specialist in ancient sport and teaches European and ancient history at his institution. But yeah, mostly I guess he enjoys writing and learning about ancient sport. And he just has written a book. It's just appeared in the previous months. It's called The Crown Games of Ancient Greece. And it was published by Arkansas University Press in 2022. Welcome, David. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. Well, I think it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to have you. So I'm going to ask you first some general questions about the study of sport in ancient Greece, and then we'll go a little bit more um, to the, uh, into your book, and, and we'll go from there. And, well, here we can. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. So, I, I mean, as, as someone who has studied ancient sport, I also have noticed that this is a relatively new area among classicists. Why do you think that it has become now more accepted or more popular in academic circles to talk about ancient sport? Yeah, that's a good question. And I have my thoughts and I'd be, I'd love to hear your thoughts too. Um, my mind is that it has to do with what's going on in, in today's world, right? And, and when I was a student, and we learned about historiography, the history of writing history. And we would learn that often the issues of the contemporary time informed the questions that historians were asking, right? So, um, you know, if there's something going on in the world and the historians at that time would try to find examples or try to apply those, those concepts or, or ideas to, to earlier times. And so my mind is that, you know, maybe in the last 50 years, uh, we've seen an, 
sort of growth in interest in sport, especially commercialized sport. And, you know, where I live in the United States or, or maybe North America generally, and probably worldwide, although I'm not, I'm, I'm not smart enough to know all of that. Um, and my mind is that as, as people get more into sport, they wonder about the sports of ancient people or earlier peoples. And so we've seen this increase um, in scholarship and research about ancient sport um, because of, of modern forces that are, are driving popularity among among sport in our day and age. This is this is my opinion anyway. Um, but it's a worthwhile question and I'm glad it, it seems to be gaining popularity because sport offers us this window to understand the world around us, right? Culturally, there's there's class and there's gender, um, not so much in ancient times, but modern times we can talk about race, we can talk about uh, all sorts of sort of, I guess we'll say, you know, important social and, and cultural components of history that uh, are are illuminated through the, through using sport. We can understand these people better. So, so those are my thoughts on that. Um, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to ask you questions, but what do you think? You you know a lot about this topic. Yeah, well, I'm not sure either. Like, I don't know. I think in our discipline, like, we tend to go more and more towards the marginal stuff. But on the other hand, the sport is so central. Like, to me, the question would be, how come sport has been marginalized for such a long time? You know, because one thing is that you study this obscure author now because, well, he's an obscure author and you've done all your work already about the Homer and Euripides and, you know, the main authors. So then you go for the, yeah, for the lesser known. But in the case of sport, I, I don't know. I think there was perhaps some prejudice against it. Like it's not really an academic matter. Oh, I, 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 don't, I don't know. It's, yeah, like the, to me it's really interesting because, yeah, sport is so central to ancient Greece. I, I think you're onto something there. I remember having a, a job interview once, you know, long ago and, and talking with the, the interviewer, it was just the two of us, and he's, you know, I was telling him about, you know, my ancient sport research, and he said, don't worry, I actually respect what you do. <laughs> and it made me pause and say, well, okay, thank you, I guess. That felt like a, a very backhanded compliment, as we say. Um, but there is, I suppose, a sense of it's less important or, or somehow, um, yeah, I think you you raise a good question or a good point about marginalization of sports studies, and and I, I'd like to see or I'd like to to feel like that's come out of the the wilderness, so to speak. And I know sports studies are are proliferating, although less so in history programs. I see them in kinesiology departments or or elsewhere. But at least people are are studying sport. People are interested in what sport brings, um, you know, to the humanities as well as to to science and, and other endeavors. So. I like how you rephrase that, bravo. Mm. Yeah, well, well, yeah, no, like it's funny, and this brings us to our second question, no, how how in the 19th century already scholars were describing the, the Greeks as agonistic, as highly competitive, and yet they didn't study sport. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it, yeah, like, like, would you think that the Greeks were really that competitive? Or is this also some 19th century 
philosophical idea. Yeah, it's probably a little bit of both. I, I think, this is just me, but I think they were intensely competitive um, in all sorts of areas. Um, you know, whether it's speech writing and speech giving or uh, comedy and tragedy or poetry or music or, of course, what we call sport or athletics. Um, I think we need some caveats in there and some scholars have I don't know, poked holes in this theory. Of course, other societies are competitive as well. I don't know if that is the the key, you know, feature criterion for evaluating Greek culture as competition. Um, but they did. They had a lot of contests. They had a lot of prizes. There was a lot of sort of, uh, I guess we'll say, social capital tied up in their reputations and you know, demonstrating your ability, your arete or, or, or similar, right, your virtue. Uh, this was a big deal for the Greeks. Uh, one of the caveats I put on there, especially with my research in the Crown Games, is that in some ways it is competitive. You know, athletics are competitive by definition, or we're trying to find a winner, sorting out that person from the rest. I don't know if I want to call them losers, but just people who don't win, perhaps. Um, but on the other hand, I think there is a strong element of unification in the ancient festivals anyway, the ancient crown games, they, they offer this sort of cultural touchstone for unity, chances to cooperate or at least talk to one another. Of course, they're competitive. You know, I'm thinking of Greek city-states or maybe on a, on a bigger level than just the individual. But um, you know, I, I think the games are also not necessarily just about competition. They also allowed, you know, people to find things they had in common. And, and maybe that's not what competition really is, or maybe, maybe it is, maybe that's a definition problem for me. But, but I do think it's, it's fine to, to categorize the Greeks as competitive, as agonistic, as, as one of their features. I don't know if it's the only feature, but um, there, there's more going on to this, but that seems like a fine way to approach it. Um, I know, of course, unless you want to talk me out of it. No, no, not really. No, I think too that the Greeks were very competitive. Yes, I mean they had competitions for everything, but of course, I mean no society works only on competition. No, you you need to have some kind of agglutination there, some kind of cooperation. Yeah, otherwise, yeah, it wouldn't work. No, for sure. Yeah. So, so do you think that? sport was as relevant as it is for now can we make a for for us now can we make a comparison or in which ways was sport relevant and I so, guess... yeah no you shared these questions with me a while ago and, and this is the one that that i had the hang up on i couldn't really come up with good ideas on because well i found it tough to answer because i mean sport is intensely important for ancient people as well as as us today, when I say us, I just mean modern modern people in general, maybe not each individual. Sport has been linked to democracy in you know modern scholarship, comparing you know ancient Athens as well as something like 19th century England or or 20th 21st century um, North America, and we get this idea of of it being connected to you know citizenship and participation and in democratic experiments or the Republic or however you want to say this, you know, progressive era things in the United States. And so in that sense of, you know, I think they do kind of correspond and it is intensely relevant for the Greeks, but, but the Greek sport is also exclusionary, right? Like uh, 
you know, there there's not a lot of opportunities for females to participate in sport, uh, as you well know um, from your own research. And uh, and non Greeks are, are marginalized at least from the crown games, from the highest levels of participation for much of the much of the existence of these games. Of course, eventually the Roman Empire is going to change that calculus. Um, and so, in today's sport, you know, I think we have a stronger sense of of participation for everybody. Anybody can come in. It's, it's often, and this is my maybe, you know, mythical, right. But this idea that sport is the great leveler is the great kind of everybody is on equal footing, literally a level playing field, so to speak. Um, so we have this ideology and of course it's not that simple, you know, certain people have certain advantages based on their birth or their genetics or their background or their income or or whatever but in general we today we like to think of sport as this kind of all-encompassing everybody's welcome and it's one of the last few places where you know you're, you're at least for me as a parent where my child will get some honest critical feedback if she's not good enough to to you know if she doesn't post a, a good enough swim time then she won't be you know, swimming with the, the, the varsity athletes, right? So be on the other teams and that's fine. That's fair. Um, so in that sense, perhaps our sport is a little more relevant to us today with our democratic ideals. Um, but it was a hard question for me um, because maybe because I'm not an ancient Greek, I can't characterize it as well. I'm not in their heads, but to me, you know, sort of modern society's embrace of, of sport as being, inclusive and i know there are places where it's not as inclusive as it should be but but we're getting there um and this drive to inclusiveness inclusivity uh word i struggle to say very well but um is 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 positive for me and so i hope sport is is very relevant for us because of this drive to offer opportunities but um but it's a hard question um how do you approach that question well, as you were talking, I was thinking, well, I was thinking two things. Like the first one is like nothing spells a quality like running around naked. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, I was also thinking about Margot, then this is about sport being the discourse of difference. You know, how sport actually signals who is who makes the cat and who doesn't make the cat. So I, I don't know, like I've been, I've, I've been also coaching for some time and, and well, depending on the sport that you coach, it's, it's not that inclusive, you know, like if you want to be good at sport, you need to dedicate a lot of time to it. So it's, it, you always uh, lose more people than you keep <laughs> you know in in your in your club whatever club that may be so i i i don't know i don't know like i think modern day relevance comes from the media too everybody wants to be an spectator you know but do you have what it get do you have what it you need to get to be an, an athlete that's that's a different story you know that's a, that's a really good point the modern media apparatus twitter and highlights on the sports shows and and all whatever social media uh definitely is going to amplify certain narratives and, and certain opportunities i think i think that's a good point maybe maybe that makes it an unfair comparison but i like your point about sport being simultaneously 
you know, sort of leveling in the sense that everyone's walking, running around naked. You don't, you don't see who has the nicer pair of shoes on, right. Or, or the fancy, uh, I don't know, Jersey or uniform. But on the other hand, of course, we're separating, you know, I suppose winners from the others, the also rans and, and the people who win get more attention and they get more training and, and people have to make some, at, at elite levels today, especially, they have to make some pretty big sacrifices to be good and yeah. forego other, other opportunities. But I would also think that in the past maybe 40, 50 years, sport has become more important for our modern societies. Like, I remember when I was like a teenager and I was watching the the cyclists, the Vuelta Ciclista, you know, like the Tour of Spain, Um there was no one there, you know, and then it hit TV and it just, just flourished. And on, and all of a sudden, instead of, of uh, the stages being a hundred kilometers, they started to become 200 kilometers or well, first 150. Then you had the occasionally 200. Now you have lots of 200 kilometers, but it, the, the point wasn't made until TV showed up in the eighties you know, and follow them stage after stage. Interesting point. Um, I live in a small town in rural Utah, which is in the Western United States. Um, the closest major city is Las Vegas, and it's a it's an entire desert away, right? And in the, the town I live in, many of the people recall their greatest moments as high school sports memories um, as spectators or as participants. And that surprises me because I remember high school or secondary school or, you know, however, whatever, you know, it's called different things in different parts of the world. But um, those were not the best days of my life. right? And hopefully the best days of my life are, are yet ahead. But um, I've wondered about this with the Greeks, you know, the, the not not the super elite athletes, but the local the local heroes, right? How much they sat around remembering the time they threw the javelin better than anyone else when they were teenagers or something like I see in my small town. And I don't see it. The closest I've ever come, I, you know, this, this really smart person I know wrote a book um, called The Athlete in the Ancient Greek World. You might be familiar with this book since it was written by you, um, where I feel like it's the closest we've come to capturing that feeling of, of an individual and what it would, what, what that meant to them. And so, you know, I, I don't want to make this about you, I suppose I, I do, but I know that's not our purpose here, but, um, but my hat's off to you for that achievement. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, it, I, I was always intrigued about the, the person behind the, you know, like the record We're like, sure, everybody can run like a marathon, but, but what are the feelings? What are the thoughts? Yeah, that's that's a different talk. But anyway, so let's go back into your book and and not about mine. Um, so I think one of, of the great achievements of your book is that you managed to connect the literature, the history, the archaeology, um, the myth, you know, that, that you managed to connect it all and put it all together. Um, I, th- I thought that was that was very good. You know, you don't you, you have everything in one book. <laughs> so, for those who are not familiar with the concept of the Crown Games, can you maybe explain a little bit what they are and how they were organized and and yeah, what it meant for the Greeks? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, the Crown Games are, are called the Crown Games because you know they were they were festivals 
right? They were ancient Greek religious festivals that had an athletic or sporting competitive component uh, at which the, the crown, the only prize, I suppose, would be a crown, right? And then, of course, victors could, could receive other prizes when they returned home. But there were four of them, and the most famous are the games at Olympia. Um, we call them the ancient Olympic games, or sometimes we say Olympian games, but these are the big games at, at Olympia. These are the most prestigious of the ancient sporting festivals. Um, the winner at Olympia got all sorts of, oh, accolades, and you know the winner of the one-stayed length race would, would get the sort of Olympia, the, the four-year period you know, named after him, and all sorts of, of interesting and important things. But you know what what kind of gets lost, I think, uh, in common perceptions is there were other games the other three years, right? Everybody knows the ancient Olympics are every four years, and I know the modern Olympics are every two years now with summer and winter. But you know it's it's four years more or less between a set of games, you know, winter to winter, summer to summer, um, and that's within you know in my mind recent memory that the modern games changed that way. I know it's been a while, but I still feel like it's recent. Um, but these other games, it's not quite as simple as one per year, but but there were four. There were four big festivals. There was, of course, the one at Olympia. And then the second, if we want to rank them in prestige, although it's hard to sort of distinguish, but, but, but the Pythian games at, at Delphi were an important festival to Apollo and the games um, had a strong musical component. So not just running and jumping and throwing things, but... Um, and horses and, and equestrian events, but they would also have musical competitions, um, which I think is, is interesting and pertinent. Um, Apollo is, is very closely connected with music. And then there were also games, and these were every, these were every two years, but in you know, alternating years so that there's at least one festival each year. There were games at ancient uh, Nemea, which is close to Argos in the Peloponnese, and not too far away from Nemea is Isthmia. Right, right on the Isthmus of Corinth, I suppose we'd say right next to Corinth, uh, a few miles away, a few kilometers away, um, in the Isthmian Games. Um, and the Isthmian Games are sacred to Poseidon. The Pythian Games, of course, are sacred to Apollo. And then at Nemea and Olympia, they were dedicated to Zeus. And these places are sanctuaries, right? These these are, uh, they have temples and um, altars and I guess we'll say buildings for the priests and um, what they call treasuries. And it doesn't necessarily work like a treasury today, uh, but they would be a storehouse, a place where a city could show off its wealth and, and feature or at least house some of the dedications to the God there. And these were neutral territories. These places belong to the gods, but of course, you know, people have to administer them. Human beings have to run the games and the events. And so these four crown games are taking place in, in these sanctuaries that are they're year they're there year round and there are sacrifices year round and some of these places have multiple events. Uh, we know it for example at Olympia there was also a festival to Hera, right, the the wife of Zeus, uh, and this is called the Haraya and it did have a small component of foot races that you know people can discuss whether or not how how sporting these races are how athletic they were. And how much they're uh, part of, you know, larger initiation rituals for girls and, and young women. But oh, I'm 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 waxing long here. But these these crown games are organized in the sense that they're a religious festival, and so every so often, every four years at Olympia, every four years at Delphi, every two years at Nemea, every two years at Isthmia, but at least one every year. 
the games would take place. There would be a, a procession of the worshipers, of the pilgrims, of the athletes, of the judges, the officials, the spectators, of course, uh, slaves, people that didn't necessarily want to be there. Um, but they would process, they would go to the sanctuary, there'd be sacrifices and rituals and events. There would be the athletic games over a series of a few days. Um, of course, there'd be banquets and parties at night. There would be great recognition for the victors. The, the you know people who could who were victorious in these games would get the opportunity to dedicate statues or commission uh, Epinikian poems uh, to otherwise you know to proclaim their greatness or stake their stake their reputations to fame. Um, and all these things would go on uh, in a limited sense, right? The crown games are, are just, you know, it's a, a few days every four years at Olympia, for example. But, you know, the place Olympia is a, a functioning religious site uh, year round all the time. And the games would just these uh, kind of brief episodes, but hugely and, and wildly popular among the Greeks. So. Um, so these are the games, the circuit of games, uh, a good athlete could compete in all of the games, um, and they would, they would bring the most prestige. There's lots of other games available to an ancient Greek. They're always connected to a religious festival. So, you know, the kind of the, the idea is that you're worshiping Zeus, you're sacrificing animals or, or pouring libations or however you choose to do this, but your athletic performance also figures into this. And, you know, scholars, anthropologists, historians, classicists have tried to unpack what this meant. You know, you want to give your best effort for the gods, but of course you're giving your best effort for yourself too, to, to represent your city, your family, um, and yourself as, as a great athlete, as a, as a champion or a victor with all the, the glory that comes with that. And so it's complicated. There's a lot of factors and forces converging every few years on these sites um, throughout the Greek world. Yeah, well, I had a question about religion a little bit later on, but maybe we can take on that one right away. And because for us, um, we don't tend to associate games with religion, like our modern games are not religious event or not, well, not in, they are, but in a different sense, <laughs> of, of a different understanding of religion, perhaps. But But that's the central point for the for the Greek games. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit more about that connection? I'd be happy to. Um, I think there's a lot going on here and there's a lot to define in, in religion. Um, today, in general, when people think of religion, it's a specific kind of, of uh, background or ritual experience. We are often talk in the modern world of conversion, where you are you know, finished being one religion and you embrace a new religion, whether that's through ritual or, I don't know, profession of faith or just um, convention and, and, and practice, right? But that's not how it works for the ancient Greeks. You know, of course, they have the big questions. Where do I come from? Where am I going? What happens when you die? What's the meaning of life? These are, are big questions for everybody, right, in the ancient times, modern times. But many of those questions would be better be um, answered by philosophy for the ancient Greeks. Those are philo philosophical questions, right? What's the what's the meaning or, or why, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Or all these things that we often look to religion to answer. And there's several layers of religious practice in, in ancient Greece, but 
sort of on the surface, we have this kind of civic layer. And I can't think of a better term than that, although it's not the best term. But, you know, think of a, a communal festival, some kind of public holiday. This is how a Greek public festival would be celebrated, right? And it's similar to how, I mean, I don't know, depending on where you are in the world, but many places, at least where I grew up, you have a parade, you might get together with your community and, you know, barbecue uh, steaks or hamburgers or hot dogs. I know they're, they're disgusting, but still we eat them. Hot dogs are disgusting. Not bad. Um, yeah, hot dogs. Uh, you get together with your family and friends. You talk about certain ideals, you know, whether it's freedom or independence or uh, Thanksgiving or however, you, you know, you want to do this. And it's, a, it's very much a community moment, right? Family, friends, in your, your town, your, your city, your village. Um, and in some ways, this is maybe the best way to consider the ancient Greek festivals. And I'm speaking beyond the crown games here. And there are drawbacks to this comparison so don't we don't need to read it too closely but this idea of communal participation in this event this public event and of course um, you know, embodying the the ideals of the community and athletics are appended onto this so these processions and sacrifices and rituals and you know we assume there are prayers and special dedications you know things that don't survive in the material record uh but they're there in the in the written sources we hear about them we don't always have the exact you know, details but we know that there was much more to it and of course the games would take place and you know about 30 years ago there was a scholar um with a, it was a kind of a I don't, know, I don't know the right adjective, but it's a little, a little out there, a little edgy theory about, um, his name is David Sansom, and he wrote a, a book about the origins of, of Greek athletics, and he made connections between hunter-gatherer rituals and, and you know, putting oil on an athlete before they compete is like anointing. And, and uh, you know, some of it I didn't quite follow, and some of it I definitely agree with wholeheartedly. But one of my favorite things that he wrote was, he said athletics, especially in these religious contexts, is a ritual sacrifice of energy. And I always liked that for understanding how ancient Greek athletics worked in these festival contexts, because how could how could the gods possibly benefit from me running really fast? Right. Like, how does that help them? We know from you know literary sources or at least in the Greek belief, I don't know if the gods are real, but I know what the Greeks believed is the gods enjoyed the smell of, of cooking meat. Right. The gods don't eat meat. They, eat, you know, they, they, they use nectar and ambrosia, I suppose, for sustenance. But the gods enjoy the smell, you know, whether it's incense burning or, or the smell of, of of cooking um, sacrificial meat. And so in the sense of, okay, that's something they get out of it, but what do the gods get out of an athletic event, right? You know, running and jumping and throwing and, you know, equestrian events. And, and I liked Sanson's definition because sure, right? We're sacrificing something important, something valuable. Um, meat is scarce in the ancient world, generally speaking, reserved for people with money. And so to give this up and to participate communally, um, for everyone's benefit, this is a, a big deal and a sacrifice, and it would be a big deal in an athletic competition as well. So I like thinking of athletics that way in the festival context, you know, the ritual sacrifice of energy, and in that sense, you know, very closely connected with the religious mindset of a religious worldview. 
it's harder to say that this is you know permeating people who go to the gymnasium for an afternoon to get some you know exercise in right i mean i go for a run on a saturday afternoon it doesn't really it's not really connected to the gods but but the gods are present in the gymnasium there are gods at the gymnasium or heracles and hermes are uh, usually acknowledged or there'd be some kind of shrine or statue there and so you know there is some kind of element to um the strength and the speed of Heracles and, and Hermes, but um, I don't know how well we can say, you know, how, how clearly or how well we can speak to the mindset of the Greeks in the gymnasium who were exercising recreationally or, you know, in, in their spare time. Uh, but for the high level crown games type festivals, I think we look at it as part of this bigger religious um, I guess we'll say celebration or dedication to the gods, but also intended to bolster uh, community and identity. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, well, as you were talking, I just was thinking about now that I have moved back to Spain, like, I mean, here in the small towns, when it's the day of the patron saint, you usually you go to church to celebrate the saint, and then you run the bulls. And, you know, after you finish running the bull, you you kill the bull and, and everybody eats the bull. You know, like in that sense, it's still quite similar to, to this Greek, experience with the sacrifice and everything i mean i'm not an anthropologist i don't know why why the yeah this this athletic activity might is is connected to to the same celebration or the same celebration but but it is you know it it is just part of it it's not <laughs> no, that's an interesting point i'm sure there is I don't know, origins, or maybe there's some kind of common human impulse or this idea of, of community. But yeah, running from the bulls, that, that's definitely athletic. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not just, that's not just the only competition. Some other competitions could be just, you know, throwing a stone or a metal bar or, you know, like some kind of, um, yeah, shot put type of thing. You know, there's all type of different competitions, but there are certainly physical competitions. I mean, we wouldn't qualify them as sports, perhaps, you know, but but it's all part of the bigger ritual, you know. So, anyway. Well, so and, and that counts. I don't know. I know people, especially sports philosophers, have spilled a lot of ink trying to argue what makes a sport and not a sport and a competition versus a play and, and activity and, you know, all these things. And so, you know, without getting caught up in the semantics, I think, I think that's, that's in the ballpark of this sort of communal experience and, and, and celebrating through physical activity. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see the communal experience. I guess that was my point that I can see the communal experience much clearer, clearly <laughs> that I could see the, the celebrating the gods no, but but I guess the gods want us happy, not always the Greeks, the Greek gods, but 
<laughs> no, they're jealous gods too. <laughs> I, I think you're right. And, you know, we can do both at the same time, especially the Greeks, right? You celebrate the individual who's winning, but you're also celebrating, and it's usually a he, although there are female victors in like equestrian events, right? They own the horses. And so we can celebrate the individual. We celebrate their hometowns or their cities and their families, of course. But then something like the Panathenaea at Athens, right? These are celebrating Athens as a as a major, I guess we'll say, political, military, social, economic force, especially during its kind of height of its power in the 5th century BC. So, you know, there's a lot of elements, you know, going on. It's not just about Athena. It's about Athens. It's about imperialism. It's about shared identity, but it's also about individuals, kind of similar to those those uh, the, those paradoxes of inclusion, exclusion we were just talking about, um, you know, with sport as a democratizing, but also a sort of separating movement. So, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a rich texture here to, to these sporting festivals. I mean, you talked about the four crown games and, you know, we tend to, to put them together, you know, like the, the Olympics, the Pythian, the Nemean, and the Ismian, and yet there is 200 years difference. Like you, we have the Olympics, let's assume 770, <laughs> who knows the exact date, but that's the traditional date. Um, and then it takes about 200 years to create the other three, and the other three, they are created within 10 years. You have three of them. So... Do, do, do you know why this could have been the case? What motivated the creation of the new games? That's a great question. Yeah. So the traditional foundation, the traditional date for the foundation of, of the games at Olympia is 776 BC or, or BCE. Um, and you're right about this number um, being strange because the other games are, you know, there might've been things going on, but the games are sort of declared crown games, these Panhellenic competitions more or less in the 580s, right? Uh, all three of the others, uh, the ones at Delphi, the Pythian Games, and then the Nemean and the Isthmian Games in the 580s BCE. And so, yeah, what goes on here? And I think there's a couple of, of things we have to look at. The first is for a long time at Olympia, at least our main source, Pausanias, tells us there was only a foot race, right? Just one event, um, this one stayed length foot race, about 200 meters, I suppose, 190 meters um, is the one event, and that's not going to leave a huge mark in the in the physical material culture. Um, but there's more to this story, I think, because archaeology suggests that around 600, maybe 625 BC, is when Olympia really gets going as a major festival center. And we can see this because um, it's, it's pretty clever archaeology, actually. Um, archaeologists excavating at the stadium, the original stadium um, at Olympia was right next to the temple of Zeus, where the, where the temple of Zeus would be, I suppose. It's going to come later. Um, but some of the, the shrines there, there's a hero shrine in the old temple. Um, and then the stadium has moved and, and the archaeologists noticed that there were a lot more wells dug. And, and archaeologists can, can tell when these holes were dug and filled back in. And these wells are dug into the ground, presumably because the people coming to the games to watch or you know, a few to participate and more to watch, they need water, right? It's hot and the games are at Olympia are held. And this, you know, the second full moon after the summer solstice, right? It's a kind of complicated um 
system of timekeeping, you know, it's the best that they had, but uh, this is typically in, in the month of August for our calendar. And so it's hot. If you've been to Olympia, it's hot, it's sticky, it's humid um, in August. And, and so these people need water and, and to demonstrate how the archeology span shows that the, the sanctuary is reorganized, it's expanded, more wells are dug, um, it's around 600 BCE. And so, you know, there's a scholar named Paul Christensen who's gone back and, and sort of examined, where do we get the 776 year? Like, where's this coming from? And the source is, is, a, is an ancient Greek, his name's Hippias. And he was from Elis, which is a city near Olympia. And for much of their history, the people of Elis uh, were in charge of running the Olympian Games, right? Because they, you know, Olympia doesn't have a whole bunch of full-time residents, right? It belongs to the gods. There are people there, uh, mainly as, as priests or caretakers, but Elis is in charge of them. And so presumably Hippias has has records for this. And Hippias sort of counts back, you know, chronologically listing all the, the, the victors in the one-state race. And he comes up with this number in, in our years of 776, right? Of course, he's not using BCE in his time. And so, you know, Christensen looks back at this and he says, this is a problem. We're just taking him at face value that he has good sources. I mean, this is an ancient Greek. You know, who's to say that there are four years in between each Olympiad? Who's to say that he has accurate sources? And in, in fact, the archaeology suggests that the games at Olympia really get going around the year 600 BCE. And so it's presumed, you know, it's, it's completely possible that they were you know, running a foot race at Olympia going back to the 8th century BCE. The archaeology doesn't leave much record of widespread activity in Olympia. There were people there. There have been people there since the early Bronze Age. Right? People have been stopping there. It's an important stop on trade routes. It's where two rivers connect, um, the Alpheus and the Claudius. And so it's, a, it's sort of a natural meeting point. Um, you know, for, for, I guess we'll say people passing through or traders or, or I guess we'll say herdsmen, um, this is a great place to go. Okay. Maybe one of the rivers, you know, at the, at the intersection of the rivers, but, um, the archeology span does not suggest that the Olympic games were really going full blast in the 700s BCE, like the, the tradition suggests. And so a lot of that is built on, you know, sort of our reliance on Hippias, you know, an ancient Greek who himself is probably not equipped with the the best sources himself and, and archaeology you know, sort of backs up that around the year 600 BCE things start taking off and we see these games spread and this is one of the big questions well then why are they spreading what do, what do people get out of these why would you want to make them more and more and this has to do with the the general politics I guess we'll say in the dynamics of the archaic period in ancient Greece we see it's hard to know exactly what the relationship was between, they call them tyrants. That word in English today has a negative connotation, and that's that's fair. It comes from the ancient Greeks, who, you know, especially the Athenians, who do not like tyranny, uh, because tyranny means rule by just one person, whereas democracy is rule by all the citizens, right? Not necessarily all the people, because citizenship is still limited, but, you know, this idea of shared citizenship to in order, you know, as the seat of sovereignty. It's very, very strongly entrenched in Athenian identity. And so tyranny becomes the opposite of that. And so it's 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 negative. But there are plenty of tyrants who are remembered as beneficial and, and competent and provident leaders. And so we see this era of tyrants, right, in, in places near Nemea, in places, you know, at Argos, for example, at places near uh, Isthmia, especially at Corinth or Sicyon and um, of course, 
Uh, it's a little different in the situation at Delphi because of, of some of the other, uh, it's called the Amphictyony. It's a pan-Hellenic or at least a, a pan-area, right? A pan-Folkian um, group of leadership. And so, but, but anyway, there's a lot of politics going on. And the, the general idea is that if you can be in charge of games and have them be prestigious, then you know, you're in charge, you're a tyrant or your city or your group of people can help run these games. And that brings you reputation and status, similar to what we see today when people want to host mega spectacles, right? Whether it's the World Cup or the Olympic Games, you know, the cities hope to gain some prestige and they want to do a good job and they will will give them a good reputation, maybe worldwide. I know it's often characterizes encouraging, you know, tourism and, and, uh, I guess we'll see, yeah, tourism dollars, but uh, that doesn't seem to pan out nearly as much as people want the world to know about them. They want to feel like they're important. And so there's a lot, this is a long answer, but I think this is a complicated question. So between the the sort of funky chronology of Hippias Avilus and the archaeology and the, the dynamics of the, around the year 600 BCE in the Peloponnese, especially, um, we're going to see the games emerge as strong vehicles for you know individual rulers or at least cities to stake their claim as prominent cities and prominent people in their quest to, to be important in this agonistic, I suppose, society. Yeah, no, no. That, I mean, if, if we bring back the dating of the Olympic Games by almost 200 years, no, that of course makes sense that, that all the games were created very closely to each other and not, you know, they, we don't have that big gap, that, that huge gap there. Yeah, I think that's, for my mind, that's the easiest way to make sense of it. Of course, you know, there people have been running as long as people have been walking, I suppose. But, um, you know, the archaeology to me is, is quite convincing. Oh, something went on around the year between 650 and 600 Olympia. They, they moved a bunch of buildings. They smoothed things out. They created a new stadium. They sort of embellished some things. Like there was something going on here that made the site more prominent and prestigious and this you know especially the athletic facilities getting embellished or built this suggests a move towards large-scale prominent competitions so another aspect that you touch in your book is that of the athletes and and we know a lot about athletes through anecdotes you know and i i guess you mentioned my book so i tried to go beyond the anecdotes in in the book but um I mean, there are no sports if there are no athletes, so that's evident. Um, so do you have a favorite ancient athlete? Uh, and yeah, and if maybe you can tell us a little bit about the stories about athletes and how they were preserved. And <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great that's a great thing to bring up because. I mean, this is, again, I know we're not talking about your book, but this is really the strength of your book is showing kind of the ordinary experience or what we could expect. But, you know, these stories of the great athletes um, are, as you said, many of them are anecdotal and we wish we had more. The sources are so kind of hit and miss. Um, I often lament how many we must not know about, but I'm grateful for what we do have. Um, probably our best source is, is a, a Roman era writer named Pausanias. And he visited 
all of these places and wrote about it. He was like a travel writer, um, you know, in the Roman period. So the games are still going on, but, you know, many of these athletes were hundreds of years old by, by Pausanias's day. You know, he lived in the 100s, right, in the second century CE of the AD, you know, uh, common era. And Pausanias often gives us the stories and, and uh, you know, presumably he's not, you know, he doesn't meet these people. They lived hundreds of years before him, but he's recording his information from the, from the statues, right? From the, from the statue bases, they often will give us little snippets of a person's career or, you know, he put, you know maybe he interviewed people or, or, you know, the stories and traditions that were passed down. And some of these stories are, are a little bit ridiculous and some of them are not, but either way, um, that's what we have. And they were meant to entertain I think, and, and at least to, to sort of brag and show off. And, and I'm, I'm glad they keep, they keep doing this. So I have two favorite athletes. One is a very short story and one's a longer story, but one of my favorites is a runner named Oivitas. And it's kind of a, a name that's not well known. He's from Cyrene or Kyrenes in North Africa, right? What, t- what today is, is Libya. That's, you know, and that's maybe something worth pointing out is, is the Greek world is far more than just what is Greece today. Right. The Greek world went from you know, Spain and France to the Black Sea area, North Africa, and you know, sort of widespread, um, all sorts of different kinds of experiences for Greeks uh, in terms of geographic diversity. So this, this runner, Oibatos, shows up to the Olympics right, in 408 BCE, and he brings with him his victory statue. Now, already already done. We don't know if it was stone. It was probably presumably bronze. So it's already cast and sculpted and you know, ready to go. And this is, this is unbelievable hubris, right? Like the way the gods operate in, in Greece is if you show too much pride, you know, like what we would say like overweening pride or inappropriate amounts of pride, you know, the, the Zeus sends the thunderbolt to take care of that, right? This is one of the great lessons from Greek literature is, is uh, you should know your place, right? Like be as good as you can, but you know, within reason. But Oibatos is pretty clever. And maybe this really happened. I don't want to act like I know, but he says, no, no, it's okay. It's okay for me to have my statue, my victory statue already made because I had a dream and the Oracle, the gods told me that I was going to win. So this just shows my devotion to and faith in the gods because I, I took them seriously, right? Like he's not being hubristic. He's just showing his piety. It's how he, he phrased it. And then this is the best part of the story. He goes out and backs it up. He goes out and wins the one stat race, the, the super, I guess we'll say prestigious event. And he sets up his statue on the very day that he won. Sort of an unprecedented achievement and occurrence. And one that should make us all pause and go, whoa, wait a minute. That's too, that's too proud. That's too much hubris. But on the other hand, Oibitas has, has sort of cut that off. As, it ops, as a criticism by saying, no, no, the gods told me. And of course, if the gods say so, then, you know, me, me acknowledging the gods, is, you know, the, their ability to tell the future, I'm just showing how, how righteous and pious I am, right? It's no hubris here at all. So I love that story. I love his you know, kind of optimism, his guts or his bravado, whatever the right word is there. Um, it's a great story. He was able to dedicate his statue on the same day that he won my other favorite athlete a much more complicated story um and i don't know what to make of it this is this is something i'm working on now but he was a he's a an athlete he's a wrestler and a boxer from from uh and a pancratius i suppose um, on occasion he's from thassos the island of thassos 
His name's Theogenes. And he wins two Olympic crowns and he has a rival um, uh, where he, you know, always through Moss, where he loses in boxing or, you know, he, he's kind of got these, these, these grudge matches. But my favorite story of Theogenes is after, after he's done. So Theogenes is, you know, prevalent or he's winning his two Olympian victories around the year 490 BC. And then he kind of drops out of our historical record. Presumably it goes back to Thassos. And we have a record of a, of a person, you know, it's just the name scratched on a wall. Um, his name is Deus Olympias, right? Like double Olympian. Um, presumably that's the son of Theogonies, right? Um, so we know his, his family's around and he's a, he's a prominent person in Thassos. But of course, at some point he dies, um, as, as we all do. And the story goes, and we read this in Pausanias, that after his death, after Theogonies has died, one of his enemies from his lifetime, who presumably never dared fight him in person because he was this great, big, tough heavy event athlete, he, he would come down to the statue in the marketplace and, and hit it with a whip, right? Whip the statue, this enemy of Theogonies, unnamed. And so one night, he's, the enemy's hitting the statue, and the statue falls over on top of this enemy and, and kills him. And so the people of Thassos put the statue on trial for murder, um, guilty, <laughs> Right, the statue not able to mount much of a defense, and uh, it's found guilty and thrown into the sea. And this, it's not as ridiculous as it sounds um, to us because of this, of this belief in miasma and blood guilt and this this notion that if there's something murderous in your vicinity, then the gods can punish you. You know, think of perhaps if you if you know the the story of Oedipus, right? Oedipus, you know, famously kills his father and marries his mother. He's unknowingly. That the, those people are related to him, but because of his his actions, he brings you know, great misery to the people of Thebes. Right? This is a myth, but the idea is that the gods, you know, kind of send bad things towards um, these communities where where uh, you know miasma exists, where blood guilt or pollution is prevalent, and you know the people of Thassos don't want to risk this from a statue that kills people, so they throw it into the ocean. So. Soon after, we don't know how long. Remember, it's just a story. I'm just telling the story. Um, the people of Thassos are afflicted by a famine. Right? There's, there's no food to grow. It's at difficult times. And so they send to the Oracle of Delphi and they say, what do we do? And the Oracle says, well, you need to recall all of your exiles. All the people you've kicked out of your town, you need to bring back. So they do this. And of course, it doesn't help. And there are problems still. And they send back to the Oracle again and say, oh, we did that. It didn't work. And, and the Oracle replies, well, you've forgotten about one of your exiles, so to speak. He says, you've forgotten the great Theogonies. And so the people said, oh, we, we, we did throw that statue in the ocean. And, you know, for, fortunately, uh, the, around that time, a group of, you know, some fishermen caught their net on something in the ocean, drag it up. Of course, it's the statue of Theogonies. And so they shine it up, make it nice, and they set it up again in the, in the central marketplace of the city. Um, in the Agora, and it's worship. They worship it, and they say that the statue of Theogonies can heal the sick, can heal disease and, and physical infirmities, and, and they worship it for a long time. And in the 20th century, you know, French excavators on the island of Thassos discovered what's left of this of this shrine to Theogonies in the central marketplace of, of, of Thassos town. Right, Thassos is an island, but it's also the name of the of the city where the people more or less live. 
And they discovered, you know, fragments of inscriptions and, you know, the statue is gone. It's probably long been melted down, but, you know, pieces of the statue base remain. And they found inscriptions saying, if you want to sacrifice at Theogonies, here's where you, you know, you place your money or you can make an offering here. And, you know, based on the archaeological strata, as well as the letter forms, these are from the Roman Empire period. These are from, you know, some of them from the first century CE, right, from the common era. So this is... And we don't know how long Theogonies lived, but he probably didn't live to be several hundred years old, right? And so this is hundreds of years, probably around 500 years after his death, that people are still worshiping him. And so I love this story, not just because it's crazy and wild and hard to believe. Um, you know, he, he, Theogonies has all sorts of sort of things connected to him. Um, he's supposed to have been a really fast runner, too, just because he wanted to try it. Um He's supposed to have won something like 1,200 victories in his own lifetime. And people have wondered, well, how often is he competing? How many games were there? They're trying to make sense of this number. Other sources have it as high as 1,400. So he's very well known, very famous. But I like him because of this way that the community used him as a focal point for remembering their city, for you know, putting their city back together. And you know, for hundreds of years afterwards, he, you know, I suppose, brings whatever he brings, whatever sacrifice and ritual bring to the people who participate. And so you know, he's remembered for hundreds and hundreds of years, not just as a great athlete, but as a sort of local hero who can heal the sick and otherwise protect the people. So, you know, these stories that get preserved in the in the literary accounts of people like Pausanias, but it is pretty to me it's fun, but also, you know, incredibly compelling when they show up in the archaeology as well. Uh, too many of these stories disappear and we only have these fleeting mentions or maybe an inscription or two um, where it just says the name or, or a little bit of detail but this theogonies has such a rich literary or you know i guess we'll say written record but also this rich archaeological record that I, I really like how the two mesh together to give us a fuller picture of what this athlete meant to his city yeah, wonderful. Yeah, and of course, Theogenes is a very, very famous athlete, yes. <laughs> and, and when you were talking about the Oibatos, I was thinking, well, he obviously knew his competition. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> he showed up prepared. Yes, oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, and I just have a last question, mostly about your future directions in the study of Greek sport and where you think you are heading where I'm heading, I'm still trying to make sense of the archaeological sites um, and what they meant and how they worked. I think the games are the most prominent feature at these places. Although, you know, a place like Olympia, one of the so-called wonders of the ancient world is inside the Temple of Zeus, right? This statue of Zeus sculpted by Phidias. Uh, but there are things that, you know, because I, and I think this is a modern thing, issue where people today are so dialed into the Olympic movement, the modern Olympic movement as, you know, games and contests every four years that sort of exalt the individual or maybe the team or maybe the country. And that's fine, but that's how we tend to look at Olympia or even Delphi, the Pythian games, although Delphi obviously has a rich history as the site of Apollo's oracle, um, and Nemea and Isthmia as well. We often want to just kind of focus on the athletic events, and that's, and that's fine, but I think the athletics complement 
um, some of just the, the roles of these institutions, or I, let me put it this way, the, the athletics are an important part of these sites, um, but they're just one of many institutions. So, so for example, literary sources have several uh, mentions of a theater in Olympia. Right? They tell us there's a theater. So-and-so went to the theater. This thing happened at the theater. So you know, there's no doubt there was a theater, but we don't know where it was. We have a good idea, and there's plenty of, of scholarly, I guess we'll say speculation about where where the theater would have been. Uh, they don't have theatrical contests in the same sense as a, you know a place like uh, Delphi has you know music competitions or people playing musical instruments or singing or, or whatever. Um, but they do have theatrical performances. And like I said, we read about them, and there is a pretty strong, I think we'll say, geographic or topographical. Um, candidate right it's like oh a theater could fit there but but this is an area we're still kind of you know, trying to figure out where did these things take place what happened there right because you know sort of to, to piggyback on your work about the ordinary people right the, the sort of lived experience of somebody whose story otherwise isn't accessible to us i think the majority of people who interact with the games at olympia or at delphi or at nemea or ismia the majority of people are going to watch not necessarily to participate, only a small number win, um, even you know, a slightly larger number compete, but most people are there to watch, are there to enjoy the spectacle. And then there are other things going on at the same time. There are sophists, right? philosophers giving speeches. Um, there are people selling cheap, cheap souvenirs. There's wild parties going on. Um, apparently there's a theater Right, giving performances. We read about Dionysus of uh, Syracuse, Dionysus, you know, one of these tyrants of Syracuse, and he paid these rhapsodes to perform his poems. And apparently, his poems were really bad, and the people started booing him and throwing stuff at these these performers. Right? And you know, where are they doing this? How is this going on? Um, there's other things too. Like, for example, we we know where the building is. Archaeologists have uncovered it, and it's an important place at Olympia. It's called the Boule or the Bulletarion. Right, where the boule met, this is like a, a council um, or a group of people that would deliberate, right, and give give uh, advice or, or decisions. Um, and we know this building was important in the oath that athletes took about not cheating, and they've been training and all this. But we have fragments of, of several inscriptions from the boule. Right? They were passing, I don't know what the right word is, resolutions, laws, recommendations. Um, how much legal authority do they have? What are they, who are these people? How are they chosen? Um, I've already mentioned just in passing, but at Delphi, the same thing, at Delphic Amphictyony, right? This is a group of, of, of I guess we'll say, well, eventually they become more Panhellenic from sort of the Greek mainland or heartland. But this is a, a council of leaders who are appointed or sometimes elected who get together and they kind of administer Delphi. Delphi belongs in theory, the sanctuary belongs to the God Apollo, but of course there need people to, to run it. And this sanctuary takes on, you know, the, I guess we'll say this, this institution, the Amphictyony takes on, you know, sort of roles of, of arbitration to settle disputes or arguments among Greek cities. And there seems to be, there's just a hint that similar no, I guess we'll say negotiations went on at, at Ismia. During the Persian Wars, we read the Greeks convened at Ismia. And this is where they would have debates about well, what kind of strategy we're going to use to fight the Persians. Should we just fall back? Should we go and attack? How, who should we recognize as giving us the most you know, important contribution to our victory? Right? These things happened at Ismia. And so you know, these, these sites have important 
cachet or important significance beyond just the athletic events. Although I think the events are, are the most prominent and, and you know, obviously important components, but I think they're just one of many institutions intended to foster Greek identity or, or at least cooperation, or if they're not cooperating, at least they're having some kind of diplomatic intercourse, some kind of exchange or discussion going on in these places. And so that's, that's where I think my research is going is to look at these institutions as you know part of the crown game sites, part of these important places um, of which athletics plays a part. So less, less running and jumping and throwing perhaps and more you know, points of cultural unity is where I see myself going. But we'll see how that goes. I got to see what the sources reveal. But that's, those are my thoughts so far. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you very much. I think, well, I wish you luck with your future research and I'm looking forward to, to reading it when, when it's out there. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and thanks for our conversation. This is, this is great. I love talking about these things. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, I had a great time too. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, <laughs> goodbye. All right. You take care. Bye.